0: From the dark web to your radio dial, you are listening to
1: CyberTalk Radio on News twelve hundred WOAI.
0: Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host Brett Piatt, a twenty-year internet security veteran, I'm joined this week by Mike Troy, the CEO at FlashScan three D and we're going to talk about the future of fingerprinting technology and biometrics. Uh, This is a a great and interesting topic. We've not hit on this yet on the program. Uh, We have covered all sorts of other things like what's a drop test or what's the OWASP top 10. Uh, If you are interested in those type of cybersecurity uh, learnings, you can uh, look us up on iTunes, Pocket Casts, or YouTube, uh, as well as our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. Uh, Mike, thank you for uh, joining us this week. I'd like to go ahead and let you uh, introduce yourself and uh, let uh, our listeners here know uh, how you got into this fingerprint scanning technology.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Brett. Um, So yes, my name is Mike Troy. I'm the CEO of FlashScan3D. We are a company that is focused on developing 3D imaging technology for biometric and forensic science applications um, located here in San Antonio, Texas. Cool. So what led you into the 3d imaging space? (laughs) It's a long story. Um, I don't know how far we want to get into this, but, um, anyways, back in the, uh, I, this really goes back. I married a woman from San Antonio. She really wanted to get back here and I knew I was living in San Francisco at the time and I knew I needed to find some sort of business that would work in San Antonio. Um, at the time I was in the video game business. And we had been looking at possibly using 3D imaging technology to um, offset the rise in development costs for game budgets. And at the time, it really was not, the current state of technology was not ready to, to do that. Um, but I sort of got interested in 3D imaging and I met different companies and, and researchers in the field that were, working on different problems with different technologies and things like that and sort of came across one group at the University of Kentucky that had developed some really interesting uh, technology and there were some sort of obvious applications to biometric and forensic science.
0: So when we we think about... Um Fingerprint scanning. So, like, I can scan a fingerprint on a photocopier. Like, I can stick my thumb on there and I can take a, a thing of my thumb. And if I turn the little contrast knobs and dials right, you'll actually see what your thumbprint looks like right. on the photocopier. Uh, so, uh, can you uh, help the the audience going through? So, biometrics is using any of, of these kind of, whether it's your fingerprint or your facial scan or whatnot for some type of, of authentication or identity. How do you define biometrics? Because I'll give a kind of a lumpy layman's definition of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty close. It's really, I think it's it's using some sort of um, physical characteristic to authenticate or, or identify someone. So um, you, you mentioned some of the common ones, fingerprinting, uh, facial recognition, iris scanning. Um, and there are some that are uh, a little bit more, abstract in the sense of like voice or something like that where there's no sort of I mean there's a physical kind of characteristic to it but it, it's not a I don't know, something you can sort of see or touch yeah.
0: and if I was Mel Blanc then you would have no idea what my actual voice sounds like <laughs> I wonder That's if right. he ever
1: forgot what his real voice sounds like
0: <laughs> for those of you that are too young to know who Mel Blanc is please go google it look it up and um he's maybe the most amazing voice actor in the history of the world
1: Right. But you hit on, I think, one of the big challenges that biometrics are starting to bump into now, which is just the fact that, you know, we are using biometrics um, or we are capturing biometrics from more and more people in more and more places uh, more and more often. And yeah. so to the extent that, that we do that and we come to rely on on these as a form of either authentication or identification, you know, how secure are they? I mean, how, how sure are we that that is actually your fingerprint that's unlocking your iPhone and it's not some some dummy finger that's that has a copy of your fingerprint on it?
0: Yeah, it's like I, I have an Android phone that I can turn on the facial recognition to unlock. So, like, right. you hold it in front of your face. I guess that means that the little front camera is always running. And if it sees my face, it unlocks the phone. Right. It's like I haven't tried messing with it yet. Like, if I just held a photocopied picture of my face or print out of a picture of my face is it going to unlock it like i don't know how well it works
1: probably i mean you'd be surprised how easy it is to fool a number of these um a number of these technologies in fact so we are actually currently working on a research project um i'll it will remain nameless but uh it's for a federal agency where they're looking at just that it's the um for what they call presentation attack detection so it is researching different ways that we can secure the common biometric modalities of finger face and iris against uh, what they call spoofing attempts or, or presentation attacks
0: yeah so if if i'm watching one of these um, superhero movies and we're at the top secret base and i see that the hand scanner and the eye scanner thing and the facial how much of this stuff is hollywood magic at this point versus
1: reality i i think there's it's probably getting a lot closer to reality than than it is hollywood magic like if you go back in time um i mean this stuff is it's getting very common fingerprint obviously is is widely deployed now obviously the incorporation of it into phones and things like that has just blown it out uh but facial recognition is there um iris scanning it's 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 all there it's 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 out in the wild it's working and it's being relied on i think you know the big differentiator between biometric technologies tends to come down to use cases and so um one of the the big distinguishers is the fact that if if you are using it for authentication versus I- identification so an authentication is really kind of a one-to-one match where like you put your face in front of your android phone and it's really asking the question of is this brett or, or yeah. not um as opposed to I've got a picture off of a security camera from a Boston Marathon where there was you know a bombing and now who is this and I've got to go out and you know search databases of millions of records to try and pull back up a, a match or an identification
0: yeah so and this this brings up another term we we should go through and introduce the audience to so false positive and a false negative
1: right. Okay.
0: Yeah, can you uh, yeah, walk them through yeah, what are those two terms because as we get into some of this identification versus authentication and of understanding the background of the concept on those is will be useful.
1: So a false positive is when you incorrectly identify someone as being a match. Yeah. Or a false negative is where you you basically incorrectly identify someone as not being a match.
0: Yeah, it's like I'm trying to unlock my phone, my iPhone, with my thumb, and whatever I was eating greasy pizza, and for whatever reason, my iPhone won't let me in. False negative because it really is my thumb. It is you. Yes. Yeah. Versus like I was eating a greasy pizza, I put my fingerprint on a can of soda. Somebody else walked by with some tape and then stuck that back down on my phone and got in without actually being my thumb. Correct. So uh, as as you go through this, uh, and and we're seeing. Uh, biometric information being used for um, that authentication, so like on your iPhone your thumb lets you in Uh, is this type of of situation that you're working on at FlashScan3D of like Biometric authentication or, or identification, which which side of the industry are you guys working through? So
1: we're much more on the identification side, which tends to be um, kind of the higher end of the market, where the consequences of, of not getting something right uh, tend to be just a little bit higher. So mostly we work with federal agencies, law enforcement agencies, um, this, the Department of Defense, you know, people of that nature, as as opposed to consumer products. So we don't the iPhone example or just you know unlocking your laptop or opening the door to the office or something like that it you know it just tends to be although it can be important obviously to those people in the grand scheme of things it's not like you missed a terrorist you know on a watch list that was coming into the United States and now he's here and you had his fingerprints before and you just properly identify them.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, as you're going through and and you're going through customs and you're putting your fingerprint in to match up to your passport. Right. Like, you want to get that right. You don't want to have the... The false negative there of this was a terrorist
1: getting on an airplane and we let him through. Right, and now even more uh, frequently, you don't want them being able to kind of spoof that system or put something over their fingerprint that now you know identified them as somebody else and and they're they're sneaking in that way. Yeah, and that's I think part of the challenge that we're seeing, especially with fingerprinting, but lots of biometric modalities in general, is just that there's been this sort of explosion of use which has populated these databases are just enormous i mean you mentioned a great one the u.s visit program so the government the u.s government fingerprints all foreign nationals coming into the country they have somewhere north of 130 million prints on file and this is an organization that didn't exist 10 years ago yeah Um, and so when you you know when you look at the challenges of identifying that you know things like one percent um false negative rates become just Un- totally unacceptable when you're talking about that that volume of, of of fingerprints and that volume of traffic or passengers coming into the United States, and then at the same time you have you're sort of faced with the issue that you 99.9 percent of the people that are coming here are coming here for totally legitimate reasons, whether that's you know they're they're on, taking their family on vacation to Disney World, they're coming to you know here for school or on a business trip, and so. You don't want to delay them. You can't be pulling people out of line. You know you have sort of an acceptable level of of, of risk that you're willing to tolerate, um, which is why you're really trying to trying to hone in on that that accuracy. So that to the extent that you do know who somebody is or you have identified them somewhere, you can you can pick them up ahead of time.
0: Yeah. So you're listening to Cyber Talk Radio on 1200 WAI. I'm joined this week by Mike Troy, the CEO of FlashCan 3D. They're in the uh, biometric space uh specifically in fingerprinting and we're diving into that on this episode if you just joined us on the radio missed the start and wanted to learn more about this uh, on tuesday after the program uh we will be up online on uh, itunes Pocket Cast, podcasts youtube and uh, on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com so mike we were talking through here is this like a the visit us program you've got a lot of fingerprints there you don't want the false negatives in that uh, so there's a, uh, we'll go back and use a, a movie analogy here. So there was, um, I forget which, uh, I think it was Gattaca where like you, when you went into work every day, mm-hmm. um, the thing scanned your hand and like actually took a blood sample and went all the way down to your DNA. Um, or that was maybe was one of these other ones, I'm a little bit bad with some of my movies, but this is where as you get into these, like they're authenticating into the building with a blood sample and right. a DNA test. Um, is that the direction we're heading? Cause that sounds harder to spoof than a, a
1: thumbprint. It is. I think to some extent, DNA is the gold standard of biometric identification. Um, You know, not only can you tell really without a doubt who exactly somebody is, um, it's, you know, there's so much more information that's in there as well. I can tell who, you know, your ancestry, who you relate, you know, if two people are claiming to be brothers or cousins, you can actually tell if they're related. I think the challenge that you get into with DNA, at least as it exists currently, is that it is expensive and very time consuming and things like that. So like we've been doing some research recently on postmortem fingerprinting. So um, and this is for the identification of, of you know, human remains could be uh, in a crime type of a situation or it could be in a, a, a natural disaster or something like you know, when we had the tsunami back in uh, Thailand and, yeah. and Southeast Asia. They were trying to identify all these bodies. Um, DNA is very expensive and takes a long time where fingerprinting can be very quick to to identify somebody and and extremely cheap. Um, but the challenges that you bump into are that you've got the condition of the skin. Sometimes bodies are either bloated or, or sort of dehydrated depending on where you find them. And so you need something that can sort of scan that and remove any distortions and, and come up with a print that could be matched against a, a traditional fingerprint database. Yeah.
0: And then, yeah. So like the, there's a, always, I guess for the, the finding bodies of dental records that dental records seem like a disaster to me <laughs> logistically. So right. like, I mean, I, so I go to the dentist every once in a while, but like, I don't know where all my dental records are at. Like they're scattered across a whole bunch of different dozens of dentists. Like if you found my body after six months in the West Texas desert and all that was left was my teeth, I don't know how (laughs) anyone would identify me. I mean, is is there like, so you said that I'm in the Visit US, there's kind of this central repository of fingerprints out there, at least for uh, some portion of the population. Uh,
1: Dental records don't seem like they're very well organized at all, um, even if they are affordable. Right. Yeah. No, Yeah. I, I think that that's um, that's sort of a, an identification method of last resort.
0: Yeah. So this is just just on TV. Do they use dental records to identify people?
1: Right. And they probably it works with their phone or something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they take a picture of a tooth. Uh, so
0: for scanning fingerprints, uh, I think, I mean, many of us have, have been through where like yeah, you put your thumb on the little thing of glass. It's got like a little mini, mini photocopier if it's not the actual photocopier at the office where you're messing around. Uh, What other ways are we identifying uh, fingerprints these days?
1: So that's the most common um, is uh, basically it's an optical technique uh, called total internal reflection. You basically put your finger down on a glass platen. It requires some amount of pressure to make a seal and then effectively based on reflections of light, it can tell sort of like what is the, the high points of the finger and what are the, the, they're the parts that are contacting the platen. And then the, the valleys are the parts that are, are not. Um, So, and then there's also, um, a, um, a capacitive technology that works basically uh, based on electricity. These tend to be much smaller devices. They're not optical in nature, so they can be found. It's more similar to like what you would find in a, an iPhone. Okay. Um, but I think the challenges with both of those, and particularly on the on the optical total internal reflection, is that. Um, well, there's a number. I mean, so number one, you are having to press your fingerprint up against a platen. So there is some amount of deformation that is inherent in, in that process. And when you get into um, situations where you're putting these fingerprints into very large databases, obviously the, the lesser amount of deformation that you have, the, the better, the more true for capturing a fingerprint in its true form. Um, and also, there's just sort of operational issues where, as a lot of people press onto a platen, the platen can get kind of mucked up. They have to people clean eat, them. People eat pizza. Right. People eat pizza. People do other things. Um, there's some people are like, there's some sort of cultural sensitivities to who's touching what with what hand. And my kids always seem to have chocolate on their hands as <laughs> well. Um, That's good. Um, yeah. Make them tough to identify. Yes. <laughs> um, so when we approach. The problem, you know, one of the issues that, that we saw was this sort of contact nature, contact based nature of, of most fingerprinting. And so we thought, you know, there's a lot of inherent benefits that you could get to simply capturing a fingerprint using a non-contact technique, meaning the the fingerprint is not in contact with anything while, while you are scanning it. So it's a completely um, non-deformed fingerprint in sort of its natural state. Um, and I guess the, the technique that we use is one that's called structured light illumination. And it's a it's a pretty common imaging technique for scientific and industrial applications. Um, it's, it basically works by projecting a pattern of light onto an object and then capturing that pattern with a camera and analyzing any deformations inherent to, to extract depth. So like a simple example would be if we, projected some stripes onto a basketball. Um, If those stripes, when they hit that basketball, they will appear to curve. And it's the curvature of those stripes that you can use to extract the depth.
0: So if I was if I was an Iron Man and I wanted to build a new suit and like I'd go stand in my thing and it would scan me and then I could go back to my CAD system and there would be like that wireframe model of my body.
1: Right, exactly. And so the, the output of our system is actually a point cloud. And so it's a, it's a high density uh, point cloud of, and each point has an X, a y, and a z coordinate. So, really inherently what it is, is it's a measurement technology applied to fingerprinting. And I think that's probably the biggest differentiator between us and what's available on the market today is that, you know, you mentioned a a photocopier, which is not too far off. I mean, most uh, fingerprint systems are taking a picture of what a fingerprint looks like as opposed to doing an actual three-dimensional scan that gets um, the ridges and valley and sort of the three-dimensional architecture of those ridges and valley as well as the curvature of the system. And then another big benefit that's inherent to 3D scanning technologies is that you get the scale of the object is inherent to the scan. So again, if you think about a picture, if you take a picture of, um, you know, like they always tell you, if you're if you're down at the coast and you're fishing, you always want to hold that fish out closer to the camera cuz it makes it look a lot bigger relative to you. Yeah. Um, Texas
0: hunters have figured this out with their deer as
1: well. Absolutely. Yes. And so or, or the other reason why you'll see a lot of pictures that'll be taken and there might be something like a coke can or a quarter somewhere in the picture just to give you some idea of what what is the scale of the object that you're talking about. So with a 3D scan, if you scan that coke can, you have the absolute measurement of every dimension of of that can. You know, you have the length, the width, the height. The curvature, um, everything.
0: Yeah, so uh, as we're, we're talking about this 3D scanning stuff, so I've seen some software startups that it sounds like they're trying to figure out um, custom-tailored clothing of like you take your phone, you stand there and your, your boxers take pictures of yourself and then they compile those together into a scan and in theory they send you a custom-tailored shirt. Like, is this real? Should I, I trust that kind of service at this point? Or are they just going to take a bunch of pictures of me without my shirt on and put them on a bad site <laughs> on the
1: internet somewhere? And you have to pay to get them off? Yeah, that might be it. Um, look, th- there, it all comes down to what degree of accuracy you are looking for. If yeah. ultimately what they're trying to figure out is are you a small, medium, large, or extra large, there may be some techniques like that that, th- that will get you pretty close. Um, the issue that you have with, biometrics is that there's always this eye towards the fact that this may end up in court one day. And the, you know, the, the ramifications of getting something wrong can be very high. Um, And so, and, and they can come under a tremendous amount of scrutiny. So, you know, when you're in court, you really don't want to be testifying to the extent of like, well, this is more or less what his fingerprint looked like. You know, they want to know exactly what it looked like and everything going into that FBI database has to be certified um, that it is to a a certain dimension and, you know, 500 points per inch. And they're very careful on that front.
0: Yeah. So my my body, if I'm going to the gym regularly, which I'm not these days, but if I am, then my chest might be bigger than my stomach or vice versa. So that changes quite a bit over time. Like if you were to take a silhouette picture of any of us, I don't think any of us look consistent over the course of, of 40 years of life but my fingerprint if you took my fingerprint when i was age 10 or 12 and you take it now how different is is that or when does how do fingerprints change and evolve
1: over over age well, they remain extremely consistent. And that is really one of the huge benefits of fingerprinting is that it is a it is a consistent biometric that stays with you your whole life. Now obviously, as you get older, your finger, you know there you could change in scale in terms of like you know your finger is just bigger when you're an adult than maybe when you were a child, but for the most part, it stays the same. The big challenge that you bump into is that over time, fingerprints degrade. So there is sort of a, a three dimensional architecture to a fingerprint and depending on a lot of um, work people do or hobbies that people have, they can literally just wear those fingerprint ridges down. And there's some percentage of the population, you hear estimates between three and six, that are really not you are not able to fingerprint these people because there is no difference between a fingerprint ridge and a valley from for all intents and purposes. And so this is one of the issues that that you get into is that, um, you know, people think of fingerprints as being two dimensional because they're so used to seeing like your photocopy example of, you know, black, black lines and and white spaces in between. But when you really sit, you know, if you sit there and look close at your fingerprint, it is the three dimensional structure of a fingerprint that actually generates a fingerprint in the first place. And so when that disappears, your fingerprint's gone.
0: So, and if those disappear, like if I just sat there with sandpaper and sanded my finger down in, at six months or a year do the layers of skin grow back or does it eventually if uh, even if I stop messing with the sandpaper does my fingerprint just never grow back no it doesn't that's
1: really uh, you can basically take them all
0: lesson lesson learned here so if, if you want to be a chameleon um, sandpaper in your finger um, but you're also then if you have to use uh, biometrics to in your fingerprint to get identified If you were going to go visit a foreign country that does that and you show up with no fingerprints, plan on spending a long time in a dark (laughs) room probably with a spotlight pointed at you. Yeah, explaining either like what outside work did you do on a cattle ranch or something. Because if your answer is, I sanded my fingerprints off. You may be getting in an airplane going back to whatever country you're from. So, we're coming up on the bottom of the hour break for the news, traffic, and weather. You're listening to Cyber Talk Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20 year internet security veteran. I'm joined this week by Mike Troy. We're talking through uh, biometrics and uh, all about fingerprinting specifically. Uh, we're diving in there. If you missed the start of the program, uh, you can catch the podcast of this on uh, Tuesday uh, on iTunes. Uh, pocket cast youtube or our website at www.cybertalkradio.com uh, one of the, the things you may have seen on some of the crime shows on tv is uh, latent fingerprints where they've got this little kit with powder and paper and uh after the break mike's going to talk about maybe there's some better ways that the uh folks are picking up some of these latent uh fingerprints now uh we may also uh walk through and talk about if you wanted to uh, get into this uh 3d imaging and computing uh, on biometrics uh What would you need to learn so that uh, maybe someday you're sitting here on CyberTalk Radio in the chair that Mike's in today, uh, running your own company in this space? Uh, And uh, we may uh, look as we close the program out, depending on uh, how much time we have, uh, tell some stories about uh, past examples where uh, these things have uh, worked well or uh, gone wrong. It's uh, As Mike was saying, as we were talking a little bit off the air. Uh, Some of these biometric identifiers are are hard science, some of them uh, require expert interpretation, and uh, ultimately all of the forms of biometric uh, identification want to move towards being where they're, they're hard science, where you can have any number of people run a set of tests and get exactly the same result every time. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. If you're joining us here after the bottom of the hour break, we're joined this week by Mike Troy, the CEO of FlashScan3D, a 3D fingerprinting technology company. Uh, Before the break, we talked about uh, different types of uh, fingerprinting technology, all the way back to the playing around with the photocopier and that little white and black outline you've got of your thumb to now a, a real full 3d measurement scan with fancy x y's and z's and other stuff i'm not sure i completely understood but if you go back and and listen to the first half of the program which uh, you can do on itunes podcasts uh, pocketcasts youtube or uh, through our website at www.cybertalkradio.com uh, this whole complete episode will be online on tuesday uh, if you're curious about uh, what a drop test is or other cybersecurity related uh, topics. You can listen to the back catalog of uh, all of our past episodes as well um, on all of those places. Thank you uh, very much uh, for uh, joining us again, Mike. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, you had mentioned in the first half of uh, the program that uh, you started off um, out in the Bay Area and you'd moved your way back to, to San Antonio. So if someone wanted to, to end up in your shoes here a, a decade or two from now, if they're kind of getting into this biometric space, they think it's cool, they're um, either in high school or maybe they're they're in college right now thinking about this, uh, what type of uh, background knowledge skills do you need in, in order to uh, kind of dive into uh, your industry and, and get going in this biometric world?
1: So I definitely think um, a number of the sort of STEM majors and things like that in college would be the route to go. So we hire a lot of engineers, computer scientists, um, some with, with bachelor degrees, many with advanced degrees. Um, I think being able to you know being very good at math is, is is something that really helps understand like what especially what we do what we do is fundamentally uh based on triangulation which is basically just a, a form of math to determine the 3d coordinates
0: so the the faster the better you can make those algorithms work the faster it can work the more reliably it can work so your, your math needs to be really good your math, yes, your math
1: needs to be excellent, right?
0: Yeah, and so this is was one of the, the things we were talking about a little bit um, off the air, maybe a little bit as we headed into break, around um, hard science versus expert analysis. Um, and it, you go ahead and, and kind of dive in and, and for the audience and explain uh, the difference between those two and uh, how you guys are working in the the fingerprinting space on, on heading towards that hard science.
1: Right, so... Forensic science, I think, as a field um, has come under some criticism lately. Some of it well-deserved, maybe some of it undeserved, but um, there's a large amount of forensic science I don't think that would fit the, the def- a lot of people's definitions of what is a, a science. Now, certainly there are some. There's DNA analysis. There's chemical analysis of, of certain properties that, that is very much a scientific um, discipline, However, there are a number um, of forensic science disciplines like fingerprinting, um, different sorts of impression evidence and things like that that are the largely left up to a human being to make the, the final determination as to whether or not something is, is a match or not. So, so, for example, with fingerprints used in a criminal case you can use a database to sort of narrow down possible candidates, but then the final identification is always made by two human beings. Um, And and the reason you use two is you're supposed to be checking. I mean, their results are supposed to be consistent with each other. Um, So that becomes an issue because there have been some pretty high-profile cases. There was a, um, a case of a gentleman named Brandon Mayfield who was sort of wrongly identified as being involved with the Madrid train bombing and I think the FBI later um, released a formal apology basically admitting to the fact that there were some serious problems with how they had identified that individual and and essentially what it came down to is somewhere along the way there was a human being or two that just simply made a mistake yeah Um, having a
0: bad day or in a hurry or whatever else that I mean in that case though like the oops my bad is Brandon Mayfield ended up like extradited and in, in a foreign prison for a while, right? I think so. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a pretty bad. Oops, my bad.
1: Right, and usually comes with a with a big settlement when everybody figures out that that, that a mistake has been made. So the the idea there, though, I think, is that um, you know, in an effort to make forensic science better, they are looking at what are some different technologies that that could help apply. You know, measurement techniques, modeling techniques, algorithms that if they don't, um, they may not replace what a human examiner does, but it may serve as either um, a- an extra check or um, just something that helps an examiner, gives them extra tools or additional tools that they may not have. And and some of that may just go right back to like giving them, providing them with better data from which they can start their analysis or certain measurement techniques that that rather than sort of looking at two things, they can actually perform a series of measurements and see if there's some sort of quantifiable evidence as to why this, this should be a match or an identification.
0: Yeah, and so tying into that, one of the things we didn't talk about uh, much about before the break was a latent fingerprint. So this is like I'm, I'm drinking a, a canned beverage right now, and I'm leaving a fingerprint on this can. But that fingerprint might be, well, it's going to be the shape of the can. It's not going to be the actual shape of my thumb or my finger. And it also might be smudged or smeared a little bit. So it's not going to be 100% the same as if I held my thumb up in front of a flash scan 3D scanner. So how do you, you do the, this? Like the movies, we always see this thing where it scans and goes, it's a 72% match or whatever. Is that really what's happening behind the scene with these latents? And, and how does that, that go through?
1: Well, typically latent, yeah, latent fingerprints are very problematic. Um, they they tend to be sort of left behind, and what they're left behind on, or what was on your finger, um, can have a huge impact on just sort of the quality. There's really no control at that time. You're you're sort of stuck with whatever's left behind, as opposed to doing a what they call a live scan of an individual. If for some reason, the fingerprint is really smudged, or they're moving, or something during the scan process. You can prompt them to sort of rescan. So. Um, and then another issue that they have typically is that a number of the techniques that they use to um, basically lift those prints are destructive in nature. And so you only get one shot at it. So you can dust the print, but if you put too much powder on it, you could ruin it. Or if you you know, lift it with the tape and you smudge the tape, then that fingerprint is, is destroyed. So some of the research that we're looking into now is how you could potentially use 3D scanning to... Directly acquire those fingerprints from from a coffee cup or soda can or something like that. Um, the benefit of of a 3D scanning technique. I mean, obviously it's it's non-contact, so you're not destroying the print. If you want to come along later and lift it with a using a more traditional technique, that option's still available to you. But also because we get the the sort of 3D scan, you can things like the curvature of a of a can, a cup, a doorknob. Um, you can basically capture that in its you know realistic state and then you can unroll and and extract that fingerprint from it and and hopefully remove any any deformations or something that, that maybe the the surface or the substrate that the fingerprint was left on was was introducing
0: so in, in as you you go do this latent scan so um, i think most folks if especially if they when they went to college it seems like college campuses somewhere near there so it was a place where you can buy a black light uh, is this like where it's using some certain wavelength of light to be able to see the the print that's left behind on the hair? And, and is this a big piece of machinery you've got a cart around, or is this something that we could as an investigator you could have uh, and bring with you feasibly out um, on site for field investigation?
1: Well, right now it's sort of an early research stage, so the device is uh, you know probably a little bit bigger than than it than it needs to be in a fi- in a final form. But yes, that's the idea is that. Um, the two main components of our system are a projector and a camera that projector can project in a variety of wavelengths of light. So we're experimenting with different wavelengths of light, being able to detect the fingerprints um, better. And then also we're looking at some powders um, that can fluoresce when they're hit with certain wavelengths of light. So almost make it like that kind of white t-shirt under a black light where it really pops because, you know what we're looking to do is sort of give some kind of contrast to the fingerprint versus whatever the background of, of the object that it's left on so that we can we can segment it properly.
0: Yeah, and as you're uh, working on these type of, of research projects uh, in the cybersecurity world now in, in general on a lot of the software things, things are moving in a six-month or maybe a year, 18-month cycle. As we, we get into some of the other aspects here like biometrics, what's the, the kind of time frame from idea until something is feasible out there as a product for an investigator to carry around.
1: It's much longer. I, I think um, there's a couple of factors that play into that. Number one is that there's a hardware component to most of this stuff that you're doing. And so that just in general takes quite a bit, of, quite a bit more time than pure software development. There is a, there is certainly a software component to what we do and is probably really where the, the magic happens or the secret sauce that the company is, is on the software side. But it is dependent upon a hardware system, and so sometimes um, you know we in, in the past have really been kind of riding the development waves of other other technologies, either camera technology as cameras get better, uh, faster, cheaper, higher resolution. In addition, uh, projection technology. So we use a lot of DLP technology, which is uh, familiar to a lot of people from. Just sort of like projection systems that you might find in, in an office to project a PowerPoint or something or a movie up on the wall. But um, those systems, when, when we started using them, they were literally the projectors that you would find on a, on a conference room table. And so we were sort of tearing them apart and trying to figure out which wires we could get a sync signal off of. And and those products have come quite a way. So Texas Instruments has developed uh, a series of, of projection systems that are particularly geared towards sort of optical metrology. And so they they expose some of those uh, capabilities of the, of the device, which has made it a lot easier. So, from a development standpoint, I think it's it's a complicated problem to solve. And um, secondly, is you know you you are going into in some cases, what could be very similar to a regulated space, but without a clear-cut set of regulations, just meaning that anything that is going to be used, there are real consequences to the results that come off of those devices in terms of potentially putting people in jail or letting guilty people out, um, and the results are going to come under a tremendous amount of scrutiny. So typically, there's, you know, even in the case where their development timeframes may, may not be that long, there's usually a long period of sort of testing and certification and just sort of general acceptance on, on the part of the community to start using them.
0: So this, this sounds much more like a, a, a research in the pharmaceutical space where you've got some research on the initial compounds and the testing and that sort of stuff, and then you do some lab testing, and then you do some field trials, and then a decade from now the thing that you thought worked a decade ago, you can actually get out there in the hands of people at that point.
1: It's probably more, yes, I I would liken it a lot. It's probably a lot closer to like a medical device development than it would be to like a a pure software play, like in the internet space.
0: So as you're rolling out these biometric systems, so they're a combination of hardware and software. Uh, As you're going through, uh, we've talked a little bit in the program in the past about the internet of things and these embedded devices and software embedded on them. Uh, some of these don't get patched uh, very often. They're hard to update. Uh, how does that work in the the biometric device world? We've never talked about that before here.
1: So for the most part, I think the the device these are these are embedded systems, and you're right; these don't you know the firmware on these devices does not get uh, updated very often. I mean, typically they're operating. Um, you know, on sort of a closed network, they're not they're not exposed to to the internet from um, from that type of security problem. Um, and I don't know. And typically, there's there's a there's a number of sort of calibration or check kind of protocols that you can run. I like I don't know exactly if somebody were to hack into a fingerprint scanner, what they could do other than maybe mess up the fingerprints that were were coming off it. Um, a lot of the devices, I mean, some of the devices, the portable devices do have storage capability, but most of the stuff that you would find, like, in an airport, it's just taking the fingerprints and it's feeding them straight out to whatever network they're sitting on um, and and not, like, storing those locally.
0: Yeah, and, and no sort of, it's like, again, back to the, the Hollywood urban legends around this where I've got some r- little rubber thing I wear over my thumb and I press it on there and it goes approved or it crashes the fingerprint scanner and approves everybody coming in line after me that type of stuff does not happen, I guess, because these systems get tested with all sorts of usage scenarios?
1: Well, you know, it depends. There's a part of that, I think, that is actually a real concern. It's the, the you know, putting something over your your finger. Um, the current systems are incredibly simple to fool, and there's a number of sort of documented cases. There's some MythBuster episodes, and you would be shocked at just, how simple it is i'm convinced that there's numerous products here in your office that we could use to fool whatever the -the state-of-the-art fingerprinting system on the market today 2d stuff i mean they at the end of the day what they're doing is they're really just taking a picture of whatever you're putting on the platen um, and whether that is a piece of masking tape or a um a gummy bear. I mean, there's all in all some silly putty I and mean, there's all sorts of documented um, yeah. substances that you can use to make a fingerprint that will fool it. Now you, you typically like, for example, when you're coming into the United States, you are presenting your fingerprint in front of a, a customs agent that's behind the desk. And so, you know, if you have a giant glob of blue silly putty on your <laughs> finger, hopefully, you know, this guy is on his A, a game and is going to notice that. But going forward, the big concern are that, you know, we are moving in many cases to more unattended um, border systems or you have these systems sort of like a TSA pre check where there's some level of of, um, confidence that we have in the travelers that we may not be applying the same level of scrutiny as to somebody just getting off a plane. And those systems are, uh, for the lar- large extent, they're they're unattended. And so what, what you're actually putting on that fingerprint platen may not be may not be visible to to an officer or an agent.
0: Yeah, so if I was TSA pre-check cleared and somebody kidnapped me outside the airport and took my thumb and did the scanning thing of it, made the fake skin and put that on their thumb and then went in the airport as me, they might be able to get all the way on the airplane as Brett Pyatt. Without me, I might still be duct taped up in their trunk
1: right right that's yeah. that's the concern okay
0: yeah so everyone going we we shouldn't have as many people working at TSA uh, maybe we should have people <laughs> working at TSA uh, so that's good uh, and so as we're we're going through on this fingerprinting so the 3d piece works much better um, and then I mean even on the human attendance helps as well but like if I had a little uh, rubber uh, cover on my thumb that had the fake fingerprint on it the 3d scanning would see that because it would be like his thumb is is whatever a two and a half millimeters thicker today than it was yesterday.
1: Right. So that's, yeah, I think some of the promise and what we really look to sort of, when we look way ahead with, with 3d is what is not just trying to replicate an existing fingerprint, which is sort of the end result is 2d in nature. And it's, it's a lot of what we do is we spend a lot of time. We, we, we capture a 3d print, but then we, we sort of unroll it and flatten it so that it can be backwards compatible with all these giant databases and existing matching algorithms and things like that. But as we look forward, yes, there's a lot more information in a fingerprint than is currently being captured by a, by a 2D system today. I mean, you have finger size, finger shape, curvature. You have the sort of 3D modulation of, of the ridges. And that fact that, like in our system, for example, we have an active projection component. You know, we can look for things like we can use different wavelengths of light to see how that light is scattering against it. And so, for example, if you have an an overlay, a lot of times what we'll see with certain wavelengths of light is that the light will penetrate that overlay and you'll get a lot of backscattering off of the, the real fingerprint that's sitting behind it, which sort of corrupts the fingerprint and makes the scan fail um so there's a you know a number of different sort of techniques that that we can use to to look for um fake fingerprints or that are being presented in that case that are really only only available to sort of new or next-gen technologies
0: yeah and then i guess it sounds like some of that the material penetrating uh will even work on a 2d scan because it could if you're projecting up it can see whether that, that fingerprint is not the, just the one there, but there's something behind it, almost like a, an MRI, or um, in a way.
1: Right, right. So there is some, obvi- yeah, some, so different wavelengths of light will have some sort of um, subdermal penetration that you can actually detect some of the, uh, the underlying formations of the, of the ridges and things like that in the fingerprint. Yeah, it
0: is, is you're talking, and I'm looking at that across at my cares uh in studio. His, the look on his face is most of the fingerprint scanners out there right now are not this advanced. they are a <laughs> bunch of old things that people should be buying new ones.
1: Well I mean they've, you know they've done a great job and they really I think that we have to remember that, that you know fingerprint technology is being used in a lot of new ways. And I, I think a lot of this was um, kind of in a post 9/11 world. We took fingerprint scanners out of uh, police stations for to a large extent, and and started using them in lots of ways that people didn't didn't envision, and that's I think when they really started to come into contact with what are some of the problems that that we have. So when you think about a police station, you have you know, you have guys that are trained to use that technology. Um, It's not time sensitive. If it takes a long time to fingerprint this criminal, it just that's how long it takes. Welcome to booking. Right. Welcome to booking. And and we don't have to be culturally sensitive to you. You know, you're getting fingerprinted, you're getting fingerprinted, whether you like it or not. And so you pull that technology out and you stick it in some place like an airport and all of a sudden you start realizing, well, we got a long line. We just have four or 500 people that got off this plane. We're trying to pass them through customs quickly. We need to get them fingerprinted quickly. Most of them are not bad people, so we really don't want to delay them very long. Um, but at the same time, we have a lot of challenges. For example, uh, when you're fingerprinting foreign nationals coming into the United States, many of them are coming off of international flights, which means they're all dehydrated. Well, guess what? Dry fingerprints are very difficult to to, to capture. And you can do certain things that can solve that. They put silicone pads down, but now the problem becomes if you get somebody that's maybe a little bit nervous and their palms are sweaty, like now the fingerprints kind of wash out. And so, um, and then on top of that, you get, we, we took fingerprint scanners and started handing them to soldiers to go over to Iraq and Afghanistan and fingerprint those populations. And it was incredibly useful over there. I mean, over there, there was no reliable form of identification. People were who they said they were. And so this was, you know, a way that you could actually fix someone's identity in time um, that they could not get around. And there was a number of documented cases where people that had been detained in Iraq, um, you know, fighting for the insurgency, they picked them up in foreign countries trying to get visas to come into the United States. and. They were somebody else. They claimed to be somebody else. They claimed to never have been in Iraq until they were presented with a, you know, a, a copy of their fingerprints that were captured at a detention center, and obviously those those visa pr- um, applications were denied.
0: Yeah, it's a, a, a complicated uh, process to go through and think about this because, yeah, the the whole idea of the fake rubber fingerprint when you're getting booked in a police station is not going to work because the police officer is holding your hand, Um Putting your fingers down on the fingerprinting machine there, um, double checking everything as the whole process is going along versus this almost the self-service piece like we talked in the TSA pre-check. Maybe there's not even a person there. How does the machine work in an unattended manner that's non-invasive um, so that you can get that broad application to, to help on the, the safety piece? Um uh, as you're going through now in these uh, applications such as in airports or now with Apple probably has the world's largest fingerprint database, uh, or maybe close if it's not the world's largest. Right. Uh, as, as, so as, as you're going through with these uh, databases to store this information, uh, you've mentioned backwards compatibility to 2D scanners. Is there a, a common file format like for Word documents? We've got like uh, Word processing documents. You've got the Microsoft Word format or... Uh, spreadsheets, the Microsoft Excel format. Is there a, a common format that that fingerprints are stored in?
1: There is. Um, I mean, typically any sort of like lossless kind of a um, uh, you know, if you're using any sort of compression algorithm, it's got to be lossless. Um, TIFF, PNG, or typical uh, fingerprint formats that that files are stored in and 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 transmitted in. So then,
0: you, so you've got the image file, and then different fingerprint recognition technology will use that image file to come up with its own vector algorithm matching stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. So they they all work off sort of a common uh, common image format, and they all have their own different takes at it. But effectively, what it looks for are what are called minutia points within a fingerprint, which are um, ridge endings and bifurcations and then their sort of geospatial location within within the print and then relationship to, to other minutia points so um they can be somewhat distortion intolerant
0: so then how do we we go from 2d file format to a 3d file format because like uh, you mentioned video game stuff every video game designer comes up with their own file format for all 3d stuff
1: right so i think ultimately what um the, there are a number of different 3D. We do not have a common 3D technique. I think the benefit that 3D technology has is that the underlying um, format, even if we have our our own sort of formats, is 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 this point cloud is sort of the the the, the base level. Um, so you have a point cloud where you have a bunch of points. Each one has their own x, y, and z coordinate. And so, despite the fact that there may be different header files or sizes or things like that, like it's they're, they're pretty easy to, to um, convert those between different formats. So, if, if
0: somebody else's hardware scanner and you were to hook it up to your your software is not a 10-year re-engineering project. No. no. So, uh, we've been talking uh, all about uh, biometrics and fingerprints this week on CyberTalk Radio with Mike Troy of FlashScan3D. If you've... Uh, not been able to listen to this complete episode you can catch it on tuesday uh, on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com thank you very much again for joining us this week and a thank you all out there for listening to cyber talk radio